go to Mum's, kill Phil, sorry, grab Liz, go to the Winchester, have a nice cold pint, and wait for all this to blow over. How's that for a slice of fried gold? Yeah, boy! So no pressure or nothing, but my last guest did a lot of talking. Oh gosh. Okay. I'll, <laughs> I'll try to live up to that. <laughs> it was it was kind of nice to, you know, get somebody on who is verbose. And I just, uh, after, I think even just after the introduction, I realized I'm like, oh, Corey is chatty. I can lean back today. He can carry the work. So, <laughs> you know, no pressure. I know you're busy and I know it's early, but chatty, chatty. Greetings and salutations. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada, and you are listening to a matinee cast presentation of the Winchester Chronicles. This is Dispatch Number 7. Our mission is this. COVID-19 is affecting everybody's lives, and obviously that includes being able to go to the movies. That means that our usual discussions of cinematic passion and perspective have to shift. However... It doesn't mean the overall film discussion has to stop. So while we wait for the whole thing to blow over, we virtually sit here in our virtual Winchester pub and turn our attention to the best films of the decade gone by instead of the new releases we usually cover. And apologies right off the top of this episode, because for the first time in the Winchester Chronicles, we are doing a breakfast episode. And you can probably already hear in both my and my guest voices that we're a little low energy. We are really going to try to wake up by the time we get to the end of this episode, but sorry if this one is a little bit more sedate than you've been used to since March. But summer is here, truly, damned near officially by the time this episode goes up. I ain't gonna lie, people, the summer feels completely surreal. By now, I'm usually waist-deep in arguments about franchise films, I've gone to a baseball game or two, I've spent at least one night on a patio with my friends. This year, obviously, none of that. It's like the old philosophical question about a tree falling in the forest and nobody being there to hear it. If a summer comes and goes without Tom Cruise gracing a multiplex screen, did it really happen? For answers on these questions and more, I need somebody far more clever than I, which is why I'm happy that today's guest is here. Her work can be found on Toronto Film Files and on Screenfish News. Jolie Featherstone is here. How are you, Jolie Featherstone? I am very well, thank you, after that far too kind introduction you just gave me. <laughs> On our seventh dispatch of the Winchester Chronicles, we will be discussing Can You Ever Forgive Me? We'll be turning the record over to play the other side, but first we begin with Creature Comforts. Creature Comforts, in case you're new here, it's uh, it's basically what is distracting us in this time of isolation and um, social distance, even though, you know, they're starting to relax the social distance and the isolation, not nearly slow enough for my taste, but uh, that's another show. Um, get us started, Jolie. What have you been keeping, uh, what's been keeping you distracted? So there's been a few things that I guess I've sort of discovered or are new to me uh, during this time of staying at home. I have a weekly um, standing trivia date with uh, a group of friends, and that is always a ton of fun. Um, so it's uh, virtual trivia, um, all sorts 
lots of themes and topics. So usually every week, um, someone gets to be a major contributor based on what you um, know about. I tend to help out the most during obviously film and music rounds. Um, so that's been that's been a huge source of fun and joy um, during my week. And it's kind of one of the rare times during the week where you kind of forget almost everything else going on around you because you're so um, focused <laughs> on trivia and getting the right answer um, and collaborating virtually. So um, that's been a lot of fun. And I'm currently reading uh, Breeding Sweet Grass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. So she is actually um, a highly decorated professor um, based out of the States uh, in, I believe it's environmental science. Um, she is a botanist, an ecologist, um, but she also approaches it um, not only from like American kind of university teachings, but also from uh, her place and her culture and her knowledge of indigenous wisdom um so it's it's just i've lately i guess in the past couple years have been getting a lot more interested and reading up a lot more on flowers and plants um so reading this book is kind of um a beautiful sort of entryway for someone like me who is just starting to kind of dip their toes into this world um and she writes in such a way that's extremely accessible um speaking as someone who is uh very new to this um but also very magical her book is highly poetic. So, uh, you know, if anyone is sort of kind of like, eh, I'm interested, but it might seem like botany and like ecology might seem a little tough or a little dry. Um, her book is very poetic. So it's actually um, quite peaceful to read and, and quite engaging. It's, um, it's funny, this is one of those this is one of those books I've seen around a lot. Um, I uh, I'm always looking for. I kind of balance my my fiction and my nonfiction. Mm-hmm. My my nonfiction um, for a while now has been all audiobooks because um, I've, I've I found that if you're a person who can listen to a podcast, you can listen to a nonfiction audiobook. Now results kind of vary because. It, it a lot of times it come it, it can come down to the narration. If you get a really dry subject and a really dry narrator, you're you're screwed. You're so screwed. But if you get some, if you get a half decent narrator, they can make even something you're not really interested in really come alive. Um, on top of the fact that, like you say, like a lot of these books, if they're written with more more poetry to them, with a little bit more prose um you don't even really have to be interested in the subject when you start but you'll find you're fascinated with it by the time it's over this is one of those books i've seen it i've seen the cover around a lot so i've kind of meant to get my hands on it but the one drawback about audiobooks is i use the toronto libraries app for my audiobooks and they have very few licenses so the moment i get interested in wanting to listen to an audiobook especially if it's a newer one Although this isn't really that new. It's from like 2013. Um, it's usually a long wait. So I'm going to try to add this onto the list and we'll see. Maybe I'll get it read sometime between now and November. Yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Again, I am not uh, near being done because I've been kind of slowly going through it, almost chapter by chapter um, mm. and lots of spaces in between. It's something that I kind of savor when I have sort of a moment of um, quiet and a moment of peace from work. And I can just kind of just quietly sit down and take it in um, because she brings a lot of her personal um, history um, and experiences to um, a subject that uh, she also has like an, an 
empirical sort of knowledge and, and perspective on as well. So it's it's quite interesting. I would recommend it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Mm, definitely. Um, so you started with books, so I may as well um, get to a book that I've been reading as well. Um, this week I started one called We Are the Weather, which is written by mm-hmm. Jonathan Safran Foer. Um, oh. he, he's known, nowadays he's really known for a book, a, a nonfiction book called Eating Animals, mm-hmm. um, which he did a, a really deep dive into commercial uh, agriculture, um, commercial like farming of animals specifically. He also writes quite a bit of fiction. He's the writer of both um, Everything is Illuminated and um, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, both both of which were turned into movies. Um, and he's, he's a great writer. He's one of my favorite modern writers for sure. So We Are the Weather, the subtitle is Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast. And it looks at kind of where we are with climate change and um, what we're doing, what the attitudes are towards it. And he... Early on, he actually uses kind of a a really good metaphor where he talks about how people were instructed and and encouraged to turn off their lights at night during World War II, right? Like all over North America were, were encouraged to turn off their lights at night, both in terms of saving energy and you know, they never knew what the heck was going on with the enemy and who knew how long it would take for like the enemy to be flying overhead and then lights become a target. Where he goes with that analogy is he says, if the bombs are overhead, a person will turn off their light. If the bombs are off the shore, a person might turn off their light. If the bombs are overseas, a person's absolutely not going to turn off their light. And right now, what we need to do with people is drill into their heads that it may seem like in terms of climate change, the bombs are overseas or maybe off the shore, but really and truly they're overhead and we need to do something really quick. Um, he, he, it's, it's really fascinating. It's really succinct. Um, it's, it's not like, you know, obviously I care about it as much as the next person, but it's not exactly something that i i reach for you know like it's not like you write a new music biography i'm probably going to reach for it really quick (laughs) you know you write something you write an environmental manifesto and yeah okay maybe um but it's it's (laughs) it's really well done i love his writing style the guy could write about the guy could write about lawn care and i'd probably read it um which is not to say that this is something that's not important or not even interesting because it's both um and it's really it's really succinct. Like I've been listening to it for, uh, you know, I take a long walk during the day and I've listened to it for one full walk plus a piece and I'm like three quarters of the way through it. It goes really, really quick. Um, so I, I really, yeah, I'd really highly recommend it. We are the weather. Um, have you ever read any of his stuff? Jonathan Saffron Four? I've read, um, everything is illuminated. Um, I think that is the only, uh, one of his books that I've read. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I know that at one point I was hoping to get extremely loud and incredibly close. And I remember it was a huge wait at the library because I think it was around the time that it it was uh, quite popular due to the movie adaptation. Um, So, uh, yeah, Everything is Illuminated is the only book of his that I've read thus far. (laughs) He wrote a a work of fiction about four years ago called Here I Am, which is really good as well. I think that was his last piece of fiction. Um, yeah, he's, he's a great writer. He's kind of like this new class of New York, um, like, you know, like you usually get kind of him and Dave Eggers and Michael Chabon kind of like lumped in together. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a good book that I recommend. Now you said you had something else that's been keeping you company for, uh, for creature comforts. What else you got? 
Yeah, um, I've been reading a lot of poetry and not any uh, author specifically. I have kind of three short poetry books that I kind of go between depending on whose voice I I guess I feel Hmm. most, uh, I I most need that day. (laughs) So the other thing I've been uh, keeping myself company with is I just finished a show on fx uh this week uh, this week was the last in canada this week was the last episode in america i think it actually ended two weeks ago canada was a little bit behind um i watched a show called mrs america did you Mm -hmm. hear about this thing absolutely i've been reading up about it just different pieces that people have written i myself haven't watched it yet but i tend to like uh the shows that fx uh, yeah yeah it's it's crazy like fx is kind of picked up where AMC left off a few years ago before they decided that all they wanted to do was zombies. Um, (laughs) But yeah, you tell me, okay, here's this new show and it's about this and it's got this person and it's directed by this person. I'd be like, yeah, okay, that sounds cool. And and if you finish it off with, and it's on FX, I'd be like, oh, okay, I'm watching. Um, (laughs) And this one, it's, um, it's kind of a crazy sell because it's about the American fight for the Equal Rights Amendment uh, to their constitution to, you know, um, guarantee equal rights between the sexes, which, you know, somewhat surprisingly, still has not passed. <laughs> it's I, I got halfway through the show and I was like, when did they finally add it? And I did a quick Google and I'm like, oh, they haven't. Um, wow. So yeah, yeah. Uh, let that sink in for a minute. But it really took hold in the 70s um and that's when the show is set the show kind of goes from like 75 i think um right up until 79 and it kind of skips forward in time um kate blanchett is the lead she plays a, a right wing um lobbyist not not quite a lobby but uh, uh, i'm gonna go with lobbyist um called uh, named phyllis schlafly who was kind of the big loud voice on the right to strike down the equal rights amendment which makes very little sense right when you're thinking of here's an amendment to guarantee equal rights for women and here's a woman saying no we don't need that um and she clobbers this part it's it's incredible watching her do what she does it's incredible watching Kate Blanchett in anything oh, really yeah. but it's it's incredible watching her in this show Rose Byrne is kind of the lead on the other side as Gloria Steinem the famous um feminist writer you know one of the um founding publishers of Miss Magazine and they the kind of crazy thing is they don't actually have too many scenes together I actually don't think they even have any scenes together but Going, the show goes back along with moving forward in time um, over the course of seven years. It also goes back and forth between what's happening on what's happening within the right and what's happening within the left and how their various campaigns are going. And it's got a cast that just goes and goes and goes. Like Elizabeth Banks is in the show and Melanie Linsky's in the show. Ari Grainer, John Slattery, Gene Triplehorn, Tracy Ullman plays Betty Frieden. Um, Sarah Paulson is in the show. And it's all uh, directed and show run by Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck. And if those names sound familiar, they were 
last year, they were the directors of Captain Marvel. So now I know what you're probably saying. You can see why Ryan got interested in this show, because it's got his Captain Marvel directors. That's true. But at the same time, Bowden and Fleck um, have created a great career for themselves with um, films like Half Nelson and Mississippi Grind and Sugar, one of the best baseball films you'll ever see. So to get them playing on a larger palette like television where they can tell a story over the course of nine hours um it's incredible and the show is amazing i just the the final episode uh played in canada this week and i was wrapped like i I, if you had told me you know here watch a show about a woman who wants to deny feminist rights i would have been like okay this is gonna be a tough sell but um it's no it's a fantastic show sorry you haven't seen any of it yet I have not, um, although it's certainly been on my list. Like it has certainly piqued my interest, um, specifically because, as you mentioned, um, the the filmmakers behind it, the cast that they have for the show is incredible. Um, and also, I guess I just have now um, uh, a bias for FX because I tend to like the the shows that they put out, and certainly the subject matter um, is. I don't know. It's something that I tend to gravitate towards. So I do mean to watch it at some point. I mean, it's, it is really important because it will, uh, it's a lot of the arguments that they're, that they bring up are arguments that you still hear. You get late in the show and the two sides are on a collision course, um, you know, for about 19, I think it's 76. Um, Sorry, nineteen in nineteen seventy seven, the two sides like finally kind of hit this collision course of a national women's conference in Houston, and in the run up to that, the two sides finally kind of start really talking to each other, and the one of the um, one of the leaders of the women's liberation movement um, is talking to the the conservatives, and she's saying, "So does Schlafly have you you ladies doing this? Does she have? Has she taught you how to do this? Has she taught you how to do this?" And they're all like, "Yep." And she's like, "Congratulations, you're all feminists. You just don't <laughs> want to call yourself that." Um, it's so it you know it, it's that kind of thing of you realize that somebody may identify outwardly as one side but really and truly they're doing things that are much more towards the other side and and that's that i think is the the benefit of the show is it really shows the the politics of the whole thing and how the 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 trading off of what you believe versus what can better your position in life and it's really well done it it sometimes it'll leave you angry but it'll always leave you entertained yeah, and I like that you mentioned that the sort of the nuance that it brings um, and how it examines uh, the stories of these different women, particularly with particularly with that example you just gave. Um, you know, because women's stories are varied and uh, and everyone's stories are nuanced. So um, I definitely think that there is value to hearing these stories um, and to or to watching these stories in this case. Well, I mean, the other thing too is. TV's like TV production has stopped. So TV in general is kind of going to slow down. So once you get through whatever shows you are working on during your, let us remind ourselves, very busy life right now, um, <laughs> shows like this will be waiting for you. So that, that's what I dig. And that's what I'm doing right now. Like I'm going back and watching shows that I've always meant to, but just never had the yeah. time for. It's like, now I have the time because I'm not working and there's nothing on. So <laughs> you know, let's, let's do that. It, but I started watching Better Things uh, since we've been staying. Oh at home. yeah, and I don't know why, but I just feel so much 
better after watching <laughs> that show. Every episode, I'm just like, you know what? Pamela Adlon, <laughs> you are amazing. Um, her The character that she plays, Sam Fox, obviously is uh, somewhat autobiographical. Um, and just the character um, of Sam Fox, to me, I... I, I love how, I guess, forward she is, how brazen she is, how forgiving she is. Um, and I feel that there's just so many elements of her personality. You watch that show and you feel like you're watching someone that you know. Even though I'm brand new to the series, I wasn't, um, you know familiar with much of the cast uh beforehand but um I watched the show I think I'm on season three now um but uh, again the, the episodes are shorter so it's very digestible it's great for for me um that I can fit in an episode you know while uh making dinner or, or cleaning up or something but um Sometimes it's nice just at the end of the day, if I have some time to just sit down and watch it. One thing I'd be interested when you do uh, finish the series is I'd be interested to hear if um, by the time you're done, if the second two seasons feel different than the first two, because the first two were the were the ones where um, it was also being co-written by Louis C.K. Yeah. And Louis stepped away after his sexual idiocy um, and... The, and it was pretty much like right on the split. Like he was involved with the first two seasons and the second two seasons are all Pam and her new series scene of writers. And I'd be interested to see is, is there a difference? Is there a difference even for the better perhaps? Um, so I'll, I'll have to kind of like come back to you when you're, when you're done um, and see if you see anything or if it just kind of continues. And then in that case, we kind of know that it was a lot more of Pamela's voice than Louis's voice, you know? Yeah, no, that's a great point. And actually that, um, you know, Louis C.K.'s involvement was a bit of a, you know, a bit of a, for me, something that kind of kept me away from watching that show f for a while. Mm -hmm. And it was only recently that um, I read an uh, interview with Pamela Adlon um, that was published, a couple, I want to say, a, um, a month or so ago. Um, and I just so enjoyed that interview with her. And I just, I her responses to every question were just, I thought, so open and so generous that I thought, yeah, you know what, I, I, I'm going to give this show a try. It speaked to my interests. And um, so I did. And yeah, I am intrigued to see how the, you know, how the latter seasons are going to be. Um, but yeah, no, that's, it's a good point that you raised. Because for me, truthfully, that was a bit of a, a prevent, a, a preventative measure, I guess, um, why I didn't get into the show earlier. Um, but again, after reading that interview, with uh, Pamela, I was like, okay, I got to give this a try. <laughs> cool. We have a movie to discuss today. Come on back right after this. We're going to get into the feature for Dispatch Number 7, which is Can You Ever Forgive Me? Good night, lady. Ladies, good night. It's time to say goodbye. Can You Ever Forgive Me was released in 2018. It was directed by Mariel Heller. It was written by Nicole Hall of Center and Jeff Witte, based on the book of the same name by Lee Israel. It stars Melissa McCarthy, Richard E. Grant, Jane Curtin, and Dolly Wells. Can You Ever Forgive Me is the story of Lee Israel. That's Melissa McCarthy. Lee is a writer who is best known for profiling famous figures and disappearing into the prose. Her books 
aren't near successful enough to compete with names like Tom Clancy or John Grisham, and her standoffish nature does her no favors to make up the ground. Lee is fired from her day job and very quickly going broke when she happens upon an idea. After selling a handwritten note from the desk of Catherine Hepburn, Lee discovers that there is quite a market for such things, especially if these notes contain flourishes of personality from the icons of years past. Lee then decides to begin forged Lee decides to begin forging notes attributed to Noel Coward, Dorothy Parker, and Fanny Bryce, adding her own brushstrokes of written wit and selling them off for a tidy sum. Soon, she even has an old drunken friend named Jack Hawk as a co-conspirator and a friend at a time where she has few of either. Of course, like all dirty deeds, the jig cannot last, leading to various levels of contrition that the title suggests. Can You Ever Forgive Me is a story about words. Big words, smart words, succinct words, nasty words. There are long, introspective soliloquies and flippant comebacks. The deepest well of words, of course, are the series of forged letters written by famous people. Letters that aren't always about something interesting, but sparkle with personality in life in the way that they are written. Words matter, as the saying goes, and oftentimes, as is the case with these letters, you can learn a lot about someone not only through the words they say, but how they say them. So, pop quiz hotshot, when listening to the words of Can You Ever Forgive Me, what did you learn about yourself? Mm, that is a, something that really, I think, hit home was during uh, Lee's uh, court appearance, and she makes a statement to the judge, and she begins it by saying that you know, she really doesn't feel any remorse for what she did. Um, but then, uh, and of course, her lawyer is kind of like, oh, my God, get down. But um, she goes on to really describe a reckoning within herself that happened during the course of these events and certainly in the aftermath of recognizing the fear that she had in opening herself up and 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 how that fed into almost every area of her life from her writing these letters um she's a really she has a brilliant mind she's a creative mind she's an excellent writer and yet she's using this talent of hers to kind of create and and, and exhume the voices of um you know literary icons that really resonated with me just this sense of self reflection and self-awareness mm. and you know what that's so important and sometimes it's not comfortable <laughs> you yeah. know sometimes it's painful sometimes it's awkward sometimes it's humiliating and ultimately she talks about how she was a coward yet in that moment that was a very brave moment i think I like to think that I'm a fairly uh, reflective person and I'm, I like to think I'm a fairly self-aware person. Um, and, you know, it's sometimes it's uncomfortable. Um, in, in my personal opinion, I, I think that's as it should be. You know, it, it shouldn't always be comfortable to kind of face yourself and, um, you know, face certain aspects of yourself that maybe you want to improve or, you know, maybe you're okay with. That's a really good point. Um, and actually, that we'll, we'll come back to that later on. So thank you for kind of leading me there. Um, <laughs> what I think I learned the most is in watching Lee and how she interacts. 
very much with people at the beginning as as the movie gets into its second and third act there's there's kind of a ground shift underneath her um not coincidentally with how much better she starts doing financially because of this caper but in the early going um there's a lot of people who are really rude towards her um whether it's a book clerk or a co-worker or even just you know a random stranger at a party or something like that and what it brings out is because she's in such a bad place um she goes back at them right like she 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 swipes back every single time and I, you know, I know it's, it's so hard. It's so, so, so hard sometimes to stay the course and not engage. But I think what I, what I learned about the words of this movie, especially in the moments where two people are being really, really ugly towards each other is that one person's discourtesy is no reason to respond with discourtesy. Now, let me be clear. I'm not talking about you know, protest and revolution here, you know, if, 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 if something needs to be yelled, it needs to be yelled. But if, if you're, you know, like if you're trying to, if you're trying to sell some used books to a clerk and they're just not interested and they're just being dismissive, you know, you can get into it with them and you can start a pissing contest there at that counter and just go back and forth. Or you can just say to yourself, you know what, I'm just not going to come back here. Like I, you, you need customers more than I need to sell books. Um, and, and that's the thing is, is watching a person never not take the bait like she all early on she's in such a bad place that she always takes the bait and you just want to say to her it's like just ju- just just walk away like the, you know sometimes the the harshest thing you can do to somebody is not talk to them <laughs> but it but she never she never seems to so i think that was what i learned early on now this film was was your suggestion as as one of the films that you love most from the last decade what is it about this movie that you love so much Oh my goodness. Where do I start, Ryan? (laughs) Where do I start with how much I love this film and what uh, elements I love about it? I mean, there's a real texture to it. Um, A texture to it that I think there's, uh, that I would say is quite rare in the films that I've seen um, in the last 10 years. It feels so truly organic. And I know that that word is, is, somewhat diluted now and, and a bit overused, but truly when I watch this film, there's just the smallest elements that contribute to this feeling of it being very, um, very real and very alive. Um, for example, the music in the film is incredible and, um, and the service of music for the atmosphere of the film, I think is, is incredibly well-placed and well-chosen. I believe, uh, Mariel Heller worked with her brother-in-law on the music. If I, I'm I think mistaken. so. Yeah. Yeah. And um, in any case, you just notice um, even in the first few moments of the film, um, you know, after she loses her job, um, she comes home and there's, you know, this very beautiful kind of classy, jazzy song. That's very, I think um, it's, it's such a familiar tie in to Hollywood depictions of New York in a way. Mm-hmm. And yet she comes to her bedroom. She's wiping the flies off of her pillow. Oh, and then you hear like guys out on the street, like yelling at each other as she's like going down to lay in her bed while this like beautiful, like jazzy, classy song is playing. Um, And I just feel that the film really embodies, um, you know, the 
the beauty of New York, the griminess of New York, the mess of it, the the like the glory of it. It's such um, a love letter to literature, to New York, um, to to Lee, obviously, and friendship. That uh, to me, there's just what's not to love. Um, <laughs> but I think my favorite elements of the film, if I really had to distill it down, um, obviously in service to the atmosphere of the film, um, the music, of course, the cinematography is just delicious. Um, and of course the performances, I mean, Melissa McCarthy's performance as Lee Israel, in my opinion is, I, I have no words for it other than just spectacular. Like it's such an outstanding performance. Um, there are moments and, and I love Melissa McCarthy, but there are moments when I'm watching the film and I forget that I'm watching her I feel that she so she brought her own color to Lee Israel but at the same time you you get so lost in watching her in this performance and you know she takes a character that um you know at at times doesn't make the best choices clearly um and you know does some does some shady things um you know a character who's very uh, sort of on the fringes you know like she's very isolated um and tends to lash out at people however i'm glad that you mentioned that it's she does lash out at people she has a very hard protective shell she does not let people in um at the same time we do get the sense that you know she's probably had to put up with a lot her entire life as you mentioned the first uh act we we definitely see people just treating her very disrespectfully um and yeah we certainly get the sense she's in a very dark place in her life and yet Melissa McCarthy plays her in such a way that you never don't care about her. I don't know if that makes sense. You always care about her. Whether you like her choices or agree with them or not, you care about her and you want her to be okay. Yeah, that's no, that that's exactly the best way to put it. I think for me, one of the things that strikes me the most about this movie is um, for a movie about something that's uh, sometimes kind of ugly, um, you know, in terms of the way these people talk and the way they live and, you know, the, the, their various substance abuse problems. Um, it's, it, it's surprisingly intimate. And that kind of shouldn't surprise me because I think to myself, this is a story that's really crafted by three voices you know you have mariel heller obviously at at the helm as the director you have lee israel who wrote the book and then in between them you also have nicole hall of center who i did not realize until i was doing the show notes for this episode was the screenwriter and nicole hall of center in case people don't recognize that voice off the top of their head she is a director a very talented director who has done movies like lovely and amazing and please give and enough said um a pretty decent one from the same year actually as this movie called the land of steady habits with Edie falco and uh ben mendelson um and when you put three women together to tell one story i i truly believe that they will illuminate darker corners that aren't normally given a tender touch it's it's kind of like what you were saying with the music the way the music shouldn't be what this story is hung on you know what i'm saying like it's the kind of music and not to go down a rabbit hole of of politics and misdeeds but it's the kind of music that you'd usually hear in a woody allen movie 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's a kind of it's it's music of a different era, which is which is appropriate because when you talk about this movie being um, a love letter to New York, it's also just a love letter to New York of the early '90s because mm-hmm. a lot of the areas that these people traverse in they're not there anymore you know that's that's the problem like regardless of whether or not the city is locked down under pandemic a lot of these bookstores and these bars and whatever they've and and these kind of grimy spots that they go through they've been pushed out thanks to you know commercialization and gentrification so it's that's i think what really surprises me about this movie is for a movie about some very bad people surrounded by some really lovely people let's be let's be clear um it's mm-hmm. it, it's got so much intimacy in it um that i really credit to israel hall of center and heller and i'm glad that you brought up uh nicole hall of center as well um i prior to this um was a fan of her work as a director um with you know as some of the films you already mentioned uh, lovely and amazing friends with money you know i was already a fan of hers. So when I heard that she was the writer, uh, Marielle Heller as the director who I, I really, um, enjoyed her work in uh, the diary of a teenage girl. Um, I thought, okay, I'm sold. And then of course, as soon as I heard Melissa McCarthy was in the lead playing this role, I saw her in the trailer. I was like, okay, sign me. Um, I saw it at TIFF. Um, Sean and I saw it together. We were both blown away by it. Um, and it's funny, because as we were leaving the theater, I remember this so clearly saying to him, I said, I hope that in the future, when a film students uh, like myself once upon a time, uh, watch films that are about New York or a love letter to New York, I hope they watch this film and not <laughs> Woody Allen's films, yeah. or, or at least not exclusively his. Because when I was in uh, film studies, everything like Woody Allen is New York and this film to me just oh god it's such a love letter to New York and as you said a love letter to um a time gone by in that city um into these neighborhoods into these um you know these bookstores um the smaller bars and as you said there's some scenes there um we almost feel that we shouldn't be seeing in someone's Mm -hmm. life and yet it's those are the scenes that I mean in any film tend to be the most impactful. Um, like I never forgot. I actually often think of the scene in which, um, Jack first comes to, um, Lee's apartment and comes inside for the first time. And (laughs) before you even, before anyone says anything, before you hear anything, you just see his hand go to cover his mouth and nose. Like just that reflexive reaction. You're like, oh, shoot, something's going on here. And then, and then um, the exterminator comes in, uh, you know, the superintendent comes in, they're like, uh, we're going to let you clean up and we're going to come back. Um, and you, that scene to me is just so low. It's so full of information about Lee, um, about the place that she's in, you know, mentally and emotionally. Um, it, it's a says a lot about their friendship you know this is a their friendship is rather new it's rather fresh um and yet here here they are working together jack's like let me in i'll help you and he does he he helped he literally helps her sweep uh cat poop from out under her bed um and you know wash a mountain of dishes um it's such a beautiful scene but it is a it is a it is a scene that feels almost uncomfortable to watch because it is so intimate. This movie is a loving portrait of these kinds of people, of these really messed up people, right? Um, that is the kind of thing that 
should be really cold and really off-putting and really gross now don't like don't get me wrong lee's apartment is really gross um (laughs) you know you can tell that early on like her place is a mess she lives alone it's kind of like you can tell that it's only a mess because she just kind of stopped caring but the film never really wants to criticize that you know it it, it, again in kind of the the color palette of the film and the music of the film it never wants to you know make her out to be a terrible person like this is a person who we are just supposed to feel really sorry for even though sometimes she doesn't even feel sorry for herself and she just wants to you know smack us away so yeah moments like that or moments where you know we can see that she has to take her cat to the vet and she doesn't even have the money to pay like she's got 14 bucks you know to try to pay for her cat's medicine um it it the the movie doesn't really want to to judge her even though you know, it, like she makes some very bad decisions. And let's be honest, she's a criminal. The film is not out to criticize her for those kinds of things. And that's that's kind of rare when it comes to this kind of thing. Yeah, it's a very empathetic film. It's a very compassionate film. And a lot of these um, elements of Lee and of Jack are just handi- handled very factually. There's not really, um, or, not, or not at least... Um, uh, a heavy-handed moral assignment to to any of these elements of herself when when it comes to Jack, you know, um, selling cocaine <laughs> and sort of living this very um, like fly by the seat of his pant lifestyle. You know, the film presents it very factually. It doesn't really take a heavy-handed moral assignment to them at any time. It's it's held very humanistically, very compassionately. Um, if anything, I, I, I agree. I love that the film centers on these two characters. You know, I, I truly enjoyed The Diary of a Teenage Girl, uh, Mariel Heller's earlier uh, film. And it's similar in that sense, where you're dealing with characters who are living their lives um, in some ways uh, very, very messy lives. <laughs> Um, making decisions that are sometimes questionable, um, but they're just decisions and their lives. And she handles them as such. She doesn't, uh, she handles her characters in that film as in, can you ever forgive me? Very compassionately. Um, I don't think she ever shies away from showing you that their actions will certainly have repercussions. Um, can you ever forgive me has many scenes that are just fraught with anxiety. Um, you know, certainly when she goes, um, to that, um, I can't remember if it's a museum or a library, um, where she actually intends to steal the real actual letter. Um, it's full of anxiety. You know, this is wrong. Um, but, uh, Heller chooses to show that to you rather than kind of telling you in a heavy handed way. When the film starts uh, having her create and sell these letters and get on a roll, it actually kind of turns into that moment in the heist when they're all like when, when, when the bad guys are like starting to like, you know, their, their robberies are starting to add up and they're being able to like throw the money around. And it's just, mm-hmm. you know, here, here's a middle-aged woman who's just able to pay her bills. It's not, you know, she's not, she's not in like a poker room throwing around mad money. She's not like mm-hmm. going to strip clubs. She could just, you know, she, can afford to feed her cat and yet the movie has just it treats those kind of moments with just a huge amount of joy it's it's mm-hmm. kind of crazy to see mccarthy of course we need to discuss because she is at the center of this movie and i 
think this was probably her first real dramatic turn. You could kind of make a case for something like St. Vincent, but, um, the, you know, going over her filmography before this, um, she didn't really do anything that was really, really, uh, this heavy, um, with her this much at the forefront before. And I love how much of a showcase this was for her talent, because I really believe that she unfairly got this, um, you know, label slapped on her of this is the the slap happy comedian, physical comedian who will, you know, make you laugh just by falling down, saying shit that, you know, women don't usually say and basically being like some sort of a female uh, Chris Farley, which I, I think was probably also unfairly uh, attached to her body shape. Um, mm-hmm. This movie is an absolute showcase for her. Uh, I know she came up as a comedian. She came up with like groundlings in the same kind of uh, comedy troupe that um, people like Kristen Wiig came up through. I've always believed that comedians can do drama um, with great ease if you give them the chance. And for, you know, look at somebody like Tom Hanks, look at somebody like Robin Williams and what they were able to do when you gave them the part. Um, Mm -hmm. Seeing her do something like this, I think just proves it one more time and how much nuance she was able to bring to the role. I'm a fan of Melissa McCarthy. So um, (laughs) I am perfectly aware of my bias, but I feel that even (laughs) if I wasn't a fan of her, um, if I was not a fan of her and she delivered this performance, I would still be, as I am now lost for words, not to say that I don't enjoy her comedy films. Spy is hilarious. You know, um, there, she does a great job, but I, when I did see her in St. Vincent, I was kind of like, yes, finally, like I'm getting to see Melissa really, um, be given more dramatic roles. You know, she was on Gilmore Girls, which was still kind of a comedic role, but it, it wasn't quite like this, like in your face slapstick kind right, of role, you right. know? Um, so we did, we did know she had she has the range to take on um roles outside of slapstick comedy um but i was happy to see her in saint vincent really kind of get to to showcase that a bit more um and of course when i saw the trailer for can you ever forgive me i was just i was sold like i thought you know what this is this is gonna be great i have I was just so confident in her performance just from the trailer alone. Um, and she certainly delivered when, when we saw the film at TIFF, we were both blown away. Um, and as you mentioned, she brings a nuance to the role. Um, again, I, I, I feel that her role wasn't necessarily like a straight up, um, impersonation or, um, you know, what have you of Lee Israel. She, she, she brought her own, her own color and her own texture to the role. Um, but I think it stayed in service to this character. There, there's such a depth to this character that, um, again, I, I love that this character sh- and the, the film in general shows rather than tells. You know, we, we certainly see, as you mentioned, from the opening scene. I mean, <laughs> I love that opening scene. Um, her younger colleagues come in and are quite brutal to her. I yeah. they came in and I'm like, oh my God, who are these people? They're terrible. And she's just like, she's just slinging it right back to them. She takes a big swig of her glass, looks like whiskey or something. You know, she's drinking at the office. They tell her to get out. And, uh, you know, she stays to finish the rest of her drink before she leaves. I mean, it's an incredible opening scene. Um, there's a lot of comedy in this role. There's a lot of humor. Oh, yeah. But, um, 
there's a lot there there is a lot of um a lot of pain a lot of hurt it's a beautifully nuanced role yeah there's there's a lot of sadness in this role and i mean Mm -hmm. i think about there's a there's a scene um midway through she kind of strikes up this really gentle relationship with a, a bookseller named Anna um, mm. which I mean if, if there's a if there's one real tragedy of this movie it's that here's this kind of budding relationship that gets absolutely torpedoed because one person was lying the whole time and when you see these two women together you're like man you know there, there was potential there but <laughs> what I think of when I think about the, the those two characters together is Anna is buying one of her letters because she's bought like two or three letters off of Lee already by this point. And she gives her her number and you watch McCarthy's face um, as she reacts, as she's like, you know, if you want to call me, here's where you call me. And her face is, uh, you know, don't get me wrong, you know, I'm, I'm a happily married man. But if, if <laughs> when I was single, if, if uh, you know, a woman selling books gave me her number, I would be like a kid on Christmas. Um, you know, Melissa Mc- Lee Israel in this moment, she's just blank. Like she almost doesn't know how to react. She's like, what, you, you, you like me? You want to talk to me outside of this interaction? Um, okay, yeah, that, that, that'd be nice. And it's, you're just like, woman come on like uh, a pretty woman just like gave you her number like feel happy and that's the thing like she's just so far gone into her worn dumpy wardrobe and her you know glasses that don't really suit her face and everything like that and her just messy messy life that she can't even see joy when it hands her her number yeah no i i love that scene when uh they go uh anna and her go on that date um it's Oh my goodness. It's so, there's so much to that scene. It's so fraught with, you know, the usual, I would say kind of tension and and, and nerves and excitement of going on, um, a date with someone that clearly, uh, they both like each other. They both have, you know, some sort of desire to to see each other, of course. Just to further your point, like she's living a very uncomplicated life. You know, she's just, she probably doesn't make a whole lot of money. She's just working in her bookstore. She's not going out to parties, not going out to bars. She's just living a very simple little existence. And I like that, uh, like on their first date, Anna already says, and this theme kind of comes up a lot throughout the film with various characters. Um, Anna mentions, you know, I thought I would have accomplished more by this time in my life. Mm -hmm. And um, Lee, you know, Lee, uh, you know, kind of makes a joke as she does, but um, she says, you know, you you have the bookshop. And um, Anna's like, yeah, well, I inherited it. And, you know, she had, you can sense that everyone in this film has their own internally applied pressure upon themselves. You know, she wants to do right by her dad and wants to do right by the family business. Um, You can tell she genuinely cares about literature and about books and about uh, the talent of these literary figures and and the legacies of these literary figures. The funny thing is, as does Lee. Lee, from the get-go, we see so much passion out of Lee for carrying on the stories and the legacies of, you know, various iconic figures such as Fanny Bryce, obviously, who comes up a lot, Estee Lauder, the book that we see. They're both incredibly passionate um, in this area. And I think that Lee has a lot of love inside her for, again, these literary figures and and their work. As we can see early on, she's watching old movies and she knows it like word for word. She's reciting it. You know, she's putting on the accent or the voice of the character. Um, And yet Lee, again, has 
is, you know, in such a dark place in her life and, you know, potentially dealing with um, depression and, and anxiety that we see her on this date with Anna and at every turn, Anna, you know, you know, trying to make some headway, trying to like open it up. And um, to me, I never found her, um, Lee's face blank. I found it so full of emotion um, that she was very, very strongly trying to contain. Yeah. Um, so much kind of, um, I don't even know the word for it, but the, like, there's just so much almost like netting she's wrapped around herself and is not allowing herself to open up to this person who she clearly likes and who clearly likes her. There's a um, lot of pain, right? Yeah. Like there's a lot of pain. There's a, there's a lot, lot of, of there's a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of restraint yeah. there, you know, self-restraint, self-editing of everything she says, a lot of deflecting. Um, and again, it's all in service to this protective shell that she's put around herself. I love when they walk out of the restaurant and, uh, you know, she kind of makes a joke about being tipsy and Lee, of course, like, uh, you know, it takes a bit more than that for me. <laughs> and she's like, Oh, have I embarrassed myself? You know, what does, what did, um, what did Dorothy Parker say? Can you ever forgive me? And obviously that's Lee's line, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. and they just have this, this really tender kind of moment between them. Cause Lee really looks at her with, this deep longing, deep desire there, but also pain because she knows that this is such a, a kind, honest person. Um, and that she has unfortunately kind of inadvertently taken advantage of this person that she's now come to really like. So, uh, it's, it's a beautiful scene. It truly is. I put down a note as I was writing about this uh, film was, I was rewatching it for this show. And the note just says, and in walks Richard E. Grant. We we haven't yet been talking about Jack in the course of this movie, and oh, it's, how how long do we have? Uh, yeah, <laughs> we talk yeah, about I him mean, all day. yeah. Richard E. Grant as Jack could be a whole other show. Um, another Oscar nomination out of this movie, absolutely deservedly so. He you know he just bursts into this bar, the uh, like calls out, oh. Lee Israel, I know you. I saw you at a party some years ago. And while she's like trying to put together why she remembers him, he just keeps on talking, keeps on talking, like char trying to charm his way into, you know, just I don't know what trying to charm his way into a free drink. You know, he, he's gay. She's gay. I don't know what he's trying to achieve as a maybe company because he doesn't have much. Um, and, and he puts it into his every gesture, his every look. Um, he's got this absurd wardrobe that looks like you know he's some sort of a haberdasher i love his wardrobe not yeah <laughs> oh yeah no i do too don't get me wrong it's fantastic it's just <laughs> not exactly new york 1991 um his he's he's got his teeth whitened all the time which i mean I, this mm -hmm. is another guy who probably can't really pay his bills but he can find money to get his teeth whitened because he says that's the first sign that the, you know that 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 that's that, that's the tell that somebody's not taking care of themselves or something Richard E. Grant in this movie. I mean, he is uh, the the performance is fantastic. Um, it's certainly um, they're kind of a beautiful duo in this film, and very reminiscent to me of sort of classic comedy duos in a way. Um, obviously, handled with much more darkness and, and a lot more sadness and pain. Um, and they're, I think, they recognize in each other. Um, sort of a kindred spirit uh, when he does come into that bar I think it's called Julius um, he walks in as you said just sort of bursting a flame um, the way that he moves the way that he speaks he is 
charming his way over uh, <laughs> sort of into Lee's heart. And again, as we know, um, Lee has put up this protective layer around her. And yet she's, she starts to open it up um, to Jack. Uh, again, I, I do think they felt uh, a connection or that there's sort of a kindred spirit. But, oh, absolutely. I mean, Richard E. Grant did a fantastic job. I love. I personally love their friendship. Mm-hmm. They're both, the, the, the dialogue between them is incredible. Like Lee's dialogue already from the opening scene, we know. I can't even describe it. It's so good. I, I mean, it's, love it. It's crazy because <laughs> yeah. you have, you know, you have a really deep introvert paired next to a huge extrovert and it really should not work like the, the the balance should be way off and yet they they managed to speak each other's language so well and there's it's it's kind of funny because sometimes this is where her surliness kind of gets the edge taken off it a little bit like when they go to they go to a diner and he's asking the 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 waiter how sweet are your sticky buns and she just finally chirps in she's like are you gonna eat it off his dick uh it's you know like it's and he doesn't even he doesn't flinch the waiter doesn't flinch nobody it's just, she just like she puts on she says what everybody is thinking and just is able to move the 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 plot along um he's incredible in this movie um i feel like we hadn't seen him in enough things for a while and now suddenly he's in all sorts of things like he was in the last star wars um he was in um dispatches from elsewhere which i loved watching earlier on in um this whole lockdown my god it seems like a year ago now but um obviously with nail and i is kind of his big part that he's really known for and stuff like gosford park and spice world back in the day um it's mm-hmm. it, it's oh my uh, gosh i forgot about spice world. <laughs> right richard e grant i mean i i, I love 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 everybody in this movie jane Curtin, who we didn't we don't i don't know not even sure we have a whole mm-hmm. lot of time for like she crushes her scenes it's oh, amazing absolutely. what really great casting can do for a simple story like this it's it's, it's a spectacular show uh, for actors playing with these very interesting and very nuanced roles it's one for the books it, it is as you said it's kind of an odd couple duo um and yet there's a i love the phrase that you used you know they speak the same language there is a shared language between them well, energy wise you know their language really... their language is liquid i think it's their language <laughs> is that they're both raging alcoholics so it doesn't matter if you're that's an introvert true. or an extrovert yeah. as long as somebody's that's buying. true <laughs> i feel like you mentioned like they they recognize in each other that they live similar lives or you know that they even if they don't necessarily specifically live similar lives, I think Jack and uh, Lee's life obviously are different in some ways, but very similar in others. Um, they recognize that they both need what the other um, can give at that moment. Mm-hmm. And um, certainly I feel that there, again, there, there's this bravery between them um, that I, uh, again, you know, comes to this whole notion of, of, fear and bravery and um, identity, but there, there's a, a shared sense of bravery and a shared sense of fear between them um, based on their circumstances. And I, I just, rec- I feel that they recognize that in each other. There's just, it's kind of one of those things with chemistry, whether it be between, you know, romantic partners or friends or what have you, it's, it's just sort of an unspoken alchemy when two people have this connection and you really, really f- truly feel that with these two characters. Well, I think that's what makes their caper, work right because i mean at first he you know at at first he doesn't he kind of almost dismisses 
her plot until she says <laughs> what you're holding is worth 300 bucks. Um, and then, you know, when she gets flagged, she needs to send him in um, to, to start running the scam. And, and, and then that kind of takes on its whole animal. It's, it's, it's crazy later on because when he talks about how to up the ante and how to start, like how to pilfer the real letter and put the fake in its place, he talks about like ripping off of, um, ripping off a pharmacy which i you know first of all i love that when we get introduced to him he's like i've been banned from Dwayne reed um just <laughs> that takes doing when he used to shoplift things in in pharmacies he says that like you know he would take the item out of the box put the bad item back in the box and then nobody knows what's going on because the box is still on the shelf and he's like it's win-win and she looks at him she's like what do you mean it's win-win it's a win for you <laughs> The pharmacy is still out. They're not winning. Um, you know, it's it's that kind of. But she doesn't like get exacerbated about anything like that. She just kind of states it very factually. Like she's much more subdued than even I was in that moment. It speaks towards, I think, the the handling of these stories overall, which we kind of talked about earlier in terms of the film itself, how it handles this whole story and the characters individually handles them very sort. Actually, it just presents them, you know what, this is our lives and and we accept it and you accept it. Um, and it's not really assigning this like hard moral value to every single thing they do, which is, as you mentioned, in, in that moment, which is a hilarious, mo <laughs> hilarious moment between um, Jack and Lee. And, you know, she's kind of like, well, it's not a win for the store, but she doesn't really she doesn't really kind of punish jack for that or, right. or reprimand him for it you know what i mean she's just kind of again presents it very factually but then kind of accepts it and moves on yeah. um yeah i really i really like that about this film i mean <laughs> there's so many things like that this film, but no they're they're uh, one thing that i'm i'm glad that you that you brought up the character of jack because i think jack is one of the first moments um where we really appreciate the movement of these characters, every actor, every character that we spend, you know, any time with um, in the film moves in a very specific way. The mm -hmm. way that they walk is all very different. So for me, obviously, when Jack comes onto the scene, like the way that he moves is so fluid. He's very expressive. He's this light, you know, that that radiates, whereas um for me, another moment that struck me in the film is when Lee and Anna leave their the Italian restaurant from their date, um, and they're both kind of walking away, and it's a sort of bittersweet moment because you're like, oh, they both like each other, but Lee, again, has a shell. She's kind of deflecting and pushing Anna away. Um, and even when she mentions, oh, you know, I'm pretty busy these days. I don't know if I'll have time to read your short story, which hmm. <laughs> is, you know, it's such a... I've heard that before. I know, I, I, I've heard that. Yeah, <laughs> I know that song. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's such... And, you know, you get the sense that um, maybe inside Lee might be kind of just, you know, just raring to go and read this story and and really want to take it in but again she's just so embedded in this self-protection and and you know this barrier that she's put up and when she walks away she has a very kind of like small stunted walk like yeah. her footsteps are very kind of short um whereas obviously very different from jack who takes these long kind of strides very different from anna who walks a bit more i would say kind of peacefully as she goes along like in Lee, her her walk itself is like a ball of tension, you know. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, versus her publisher who walks in this very kind of like classy kind of way. Like there's a lot to each character. Again, a lot of showing and not telling about each one. Well, I think, um, I think that is interesting. Yeah. I think that comes down to the physicality. Like, you know, again, going back to McCarthy's work as a comedian and putting, you know, a lot of the performance into the body. Um, you know, I, I hate to use this word cause it's kind of a nasty word, but if I could describe Lee Israel one way, it's dumpy, you know, like her clothes don't fit. Her hair is terrible. She's almost always got her arms like wrapped around her. Like you say, that shell closed off. And that's not Melissa McCarthy. Melissa McCarthy, we've seen her. We've seen her work. We've seen her on talk shows. We've seen her on red carpets. Um, you know, like she is much more aware of her body and how to move it. You know, we saw we saw her as Sookie, you know, who was like so full of life, you know, not exactly a rich per character at all and just kind of a simple cook, um, you know, it, but to see her deliberately put into this character, it's like, OK, I am somebody who is really reserved, really unhappy probably to the point of self-loathing i don't want to take up the space that i'm taking up i'm gonna i'm gonna gonna move in this way i love that you brought that up this notion of taking up the least amount of space possible um and and as i mentioned like her walk out of the restaurant the the steps are very short she's not taking long strides her body is very pulled into itself like her arms are very closely tucked into her body like it's as you mentioned like this sense um, of taking up the least amount of space possible, keeping yourself guarded and protected from, you know, everything outside of you. Um, and I think that it's interesting because I feel that a lot of people care about Lee because a lot of people, well, obviously from the performance being amazing and the direction, the writing, but a lot of people I think can relate to Lee, not to the extent (laughs) that she takes it, but I think everyone at at least at some point in their life, or even maybe kind of um, chronically throughout your whole life, maybe, maybe to a lesser extent has felt that, you know, this, this fear or, or it could be self-loathing, um, yeah, and and this this sort of unconscious mentality of taking up the least amount of space possible and protecting yourself from from everything outside of you that you can't control. Um, yeah, it's it's a very I think um, human thing, and I think a lot of people can relate to that, which is part of the reason why we do care about her so much. But no, I'm I'm really glad that you mentioned that, like the physicality of the roles. What I love about this movie is that it's not showy you know what i'm saying it's not something like a terrence malick movie and i enjoy terrence malick movies so this is not a slap oh, at malick too. but it's not like a terrence <laughs> malick movie where we're supposed to watch water cascading over a ridge and have metaphorical thoughts about life you know this is just it's a very simple story it's not even long it's like 90 minutes 100 minutes maybe um but just it packs a lot into that time in terms of nuance and empathy and performance it's all music it's all in there we we're not even really going to have time to touch on the letters themselves and what they represent which i think is actually really important in an age where we don't send notes or letters anymore you know like when was the last time you got an email or a letter that was like just a little hey how are you kind of thing or thanks for this or whatever like i mean maybe we send a text i don't think the vast majority of people send an email or a text that have near the amount of care that these letters both real and forged in this movie have i agree i mean i think there's 
there is such a beauty um, in looking at these letters. Again, we could we could talk uh, we could talk at length about them, but just the notion of that was just kind of everyday communication. Like people would send a letter just to check in on on how your life's going. You know, yeah. what what have you been doing lately? And people would take the time and the care towards writing them out. And there's just something to be said for that, you know, from, from the very physical aspect of how this person writes, how they actually lay letters down on a piece of paper, um, to, um, the, the, the language itself and the verbiage itself. Um, that was one of the most, I think, thrilling things of this movie is when we get to read or hear the letters, um, whether they're written out or read out loud, um, when we get to actually hear the, the, the content of the letters, um, it, it's thrilling. Like I, they brought so much joy to me every time we get to hear them. Uh, clearly we're listening in on the voices of, you know, iconic literary figures who are known to have, you know, um, impeccable wit and, um, and just sort of like an insightfulness, you know, writing a letter to someone that you would send just about how your week went or how the weekend was, and you take the time and write and send them a letter. Now, everything is sort of, um, broadcast as opposed to this very personal uh one-to-one communication um it's oh how's your weekend going you don't write a letter about it anymore you film it and you broadcast it on instagram stories or snapchat or tiktok or what have you and it's 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 packaged and broadcast to a large number of people at once um as opposed to you know kind of writing specifically to one other person um and when you are writing to one other person um or even if you're taking a video nowadays and sending it to another person, it's how you handle it is very different. The information is packaged and sort of um, fed by your relationship to that person, um, as opposed to just filming something and broadcasting out there for anyone who may follow you on Instagram or, or what have you. Um, it's a very different mentality, I think, around communication. Um, and certainly... I, I personally love cards. Um, Sean can tell you I have a box full of cards. I keep cards that are given to me much to, I think, everyone, uh, his dismay, my parents' dismay, um, anyone who's ever lived with me's dismay. Um, but, yeah, I, there's just a, a, a beauty there. And, we, yeah, we unfortunately don't get to see it as often. Yeah. I do have one, one family member, kind of an obscure family member, who um, every year during the holidays sends us a card. And in the card, they put in a letter that they have typed out. Um, but it's kind of that same mentality of telling you how their year has been and how it's oh, gone, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's typed out and sent and it's sent to everyone. You know what right. I mean? So it's kind of an interesting uh, middle ground between, you know, you know, sending a note about how your week or your year has been. It's funny. That's a very old school um, custom, the Christmas letter. Like I, like I, I know that that goes back quite a ways. Um, it was, it was really common for a for a while. Uh, I have a friend who still does it. Uh, oddly enough, he's going to be on the next show. Um, but oh, uh, yeah. Um, but it's what I, kind of glean from that it's it's incredible about this story and how you have this buying and selling and and you know um subculture of letters like i am a person who collects stuff records comics books 
movies, you name it. I am the anti-Marie Kondo. And you know what? Let me tell you <laughs> something. You know what's great about being in your apartment, like with nowhere to go uh, during a pandemic? There's stuff. So that's what, that's what brings me joy, Marie. Um, yes. <laughs> but what I, while I can spot my kind a mile away, whether it's spoons or model trains or, you know, little toys or whatever of collecting things this is different because of what you say about the nature of a personal letter like there is a lot of personality intimacy um secrecy in what these letters contain there is there is deep value like these these are the kinds of things that are a lot of times are just lost to time you know, like not everybody is like you and, and keeps these things for a long, long time. Like a lot of the people who receive these letters may or may not have lost them in a move or tore them away. You know, two of the Fanny Bryce letters are found in a book. Um, so that's the one thing I love about this movie is that it takes something that should just basically kind of be a fetish property. And it really makes you think about it and say, no, 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 this is something that actually has historical value, whether or not the person is famous or not, but it actually takes you mm-hmm. inside of of somebody in terms of what they chose to put the paper to another person. This film deals with the commodification of these very personal, intimate you know, letters. It's good in a way, I guess, because it, it keeps them alive. It keeps them circulating. It keeps them preserved and around. Um, but at the same time, there does it does feel strange that these very personal and secret um, communiques between, uh, you know, friends or lovers or what have you um, are now being bought and sold. Well, we end every dispatch here on the Chronicles with um, the question of um, the film and its place in the decade gone by. Um, And this is an interesting film to that end. Now, I, I have a few thoughts of my own, but what is it about Can You Ever Forgive Me for you that you think best encapsulates the decade that's just passed? For me, why I think it stands out uh, for me in the films that came out in the last decade is the empathy with which it treats two characters who I think hitherto were either not ever, ever centered on mm. screen, or if they or if they were, they were ha- they were handled in such a way that you know it would have been some sort of morality tale. Um, whereas in this film, these are two characters who are centered and focused on and. They're handled factually um, with just pure compassion and love and just acceptance. It's very special in so many ways, but extra special in how it handles two characters that, again, hitherto, I don't think I've seen centered in this way. No, I th- like I think in the past, both of these characters in another film would have been a sidekick, you know, or would have mm-hmm. been a background character not well-spoken quiet kind of character in in a story where sorry we gotta we, we've got too much time to we, we can't waste time on you we've got this other shenanigan happening over here um so yeah i think we are at a place in cinema history where we can start telling different stories about different people and putting them at the center of it whereas in the past you know it would have been about far more glamorous people far more um sympathetic people you know like we we would have been spending more time with heroes in the past than we would be spending it with with like you know two liars um but (laughs) i think for me um 
what encapsulates this decade in this movie, it actually goes back to something you talked about in the intro of Lee's uh, when she finally does get caught and she goes before a judge and she makes a statement um, to, in her, not not so much in her defense, but just her remarks before sentence is passed. Um, and we don't really know if it influenced the judgment or not. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But what I love about that statement um, and, and the way that McCarthy performs it is we can see for the first time after like 90 minutes we can see true contrition it's like she has been she has been walled off for this whole time and all of a sudden just the dam has opened and she is saying you know i am sorry like i am not gonna stand here and use my circumstances as an excuse or the way other people treated me as an excuse i did some shitty shitty things and my anxiety turned from my anxiety turned to getting caught. My anxiety turned from, you know, not being able to pay my bills and not being able to to do my work to my anxiety turned to getting caught. And I'm not sorry I got caught. I'm standing here after I got caught and I am sorry I did it. And listening to all that, it's amazing that we back in the creature comforts were talking about Louis C.K. That is missing because we've reached this weird place where if somebody needs to put their hand up and say, I screwed up, they don't actually often have that contrition in what they say and how they say it. They're they're sorry somebody else got offended, but they're not sorry they offended them. I've said this a few times over the course of the Chronicles. I don't know if it's just the age I am and paying more attention to this kind of thing or what, but it feels like more and more that's been this weird pattern to when public figures usually men get caught doing something bad when it time comes to them to make a statement on it if they even choose to they're not sorry they did it or they're not sorry they hurt a person they're sorry that person got hurt and it's yeah seeing that difference in this movie maybe you know i again i don't know if i'm speaking out of my ass but maybe it become it comes from a story told by three women i don't know um but that to me is key in terms of how this movie is emblematic of the last 10 years well we end every uh every one of these dispatches of the chronicles with a souvenir something tangible or intangible uh that we would take away from this movie and keep if we could julie featherstone what would be your souvenir from uh can you ever forgive me uh the letter that she wrote um in the voice of dorothy parker Uh, any letter but uh, the original one uh that she the first one that she wrote i would keep i would love to keep that i'm a fan of dorothy parker i have uh one of her poetry books um and i i I look at it uh, regularly. Um, so I would keep the, the the first letter that she wrote in Dorothy Parker's voice. That's what I would keep. I am woefully ill-read on Dorothy Parker. I gotta. I need to take care of that while I'm still locked down. Um, I think you'll. I think you'll enjoy her. I'm certain I will. Um, I mean, it's funny that you're talking about how hard this was for you to choose because for me it was really simple. Um, oh yeah. Con- cons- I mean, considering our circumstances, um, those bookstores. Uh, I I did not 
realize how badly I would miss a bookstore until you put me three months of not being able to go into one and not even the the, the trick about it is it's kind of like grocery stores as well because I'm a cook um it's not even just to go in and buy something because lord knows that's really easy these days but it's to go in and browse and be mm-hmm. in that space with like that kind of vibe that kind of like dusty musty smell New York has some of the best bookstores especially those kind of slightly more highfalutin ones that peddle in rare copies um i would give anything right now to go hang out in one of those bookstores uh you know for for even just 20 minutes um that that was a really easy pull when i was watching this movie and being like i remember bookstores that's can you ever forgive me we obviously both really recommend it um you know we're we're getting beyond the normal choices for best of the decade which was part of the reason why i wanted to do these dispatches was to get beyond the general 10 or 20 that everybody mentions and not to say that those movies aren't incredible they are but to get into some of the more personal selections of the best of the decade and kind of get into why um obviously we've just given you a lot of reasons why maybe you agree with us maybe you don't let me know ryan at the matinee Twitter, where I'm matinee underscore CA, or Facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of Mariel Heller's Can You Ever Forgive Me? We are going to come right back after this, flip the record over, and play the other side. So come on back after this quick break. back julie featherstone ryan mcneil it's winchester chronicles dispatch number seven we've been talking about can you ever forgive me uh we are uh running a little bit long this weekend so we're uh, going to kind of take the next section a little bit quicker than normal so apologies in advance i feel you know you've mentioned it once or twice already so i kind of feel that there is one other side selection that we have in common maybe not maybe i'm being presumptuous but um i had on my list diary of a teenage girl I actually found it somewhat difficult to think of a uh, like a double feature kind of film or a companion piece. I I 100% think that your choice is is great because as as you said we've mentioned kind of similar ways in which um, th- these characters are handled um, and uh, the kind of lives that that we peer into. Um, of course, like Marielle Heller at the helm. Um, y- I just love her, but um, no, that, that's an excellent companion piece. Well, that I think just Mary Heller as a director, um, you know, you and I are both fans of um, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Um, there's mm-hmm. Diary of a Teenage Girl. She only has, I believe, the three features under her belt so far. And very, very quickly, I found that she is a voice that I want to seek out every time that she makes a movie. She doesn't make really flashy, showy movies. I mean, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood is kind of flashy in a whole other way in the way that she's playing with little models and kind of trying to emulate the work of Mr. Rogers. But the way she tells her films, they're much more subdued, much more intricate. Um, She's a wonderful storyteller that just finds a way to tell stories of people who you wouldn't always seek out their story whether it's the reporter in the Mr. Rogers story or you know certainly um 
mini at the at the center of Diary of a Teenage Girl. Um, it's it's crazy because the two movies, Diary and Can You Ever Forgive Me narratively they don't have a whole lot in common like if i was to program this as a double feature audiences would probably feel a little bit of whiplash but at the same time i still feel like saying here are two stories by the same storyteller let's talk about the common threads would be kind of an interesting project oh absolutely no i think a great uh great discussion would come out of that um as you said they're very um different in many ways but there there's certainly common threads between the two that i think would create a really interesting dialogue what did you have as an other side selection to go along with can you ever forgive me uh, for me i was thinking of uh francis ha oh. um yeah i was kind of thinking about that is obviously um you're keeping that kind of new york vibe um we're peering into the life of someone who's you know a little bit lost and they don't really know where to go from here they're both struggling with notions of well what like, what the heck have I actually achieved? You know, I haven't found my voice. I haven't found my place. Um, and they both, I think, struggle with insecurity and fear because of that. That's a great choice. Because first of all, I mean, like, that's another movie from the last 10 years that I feel is really, really wonderful and doesn't get kind of doesn't get talked about enough. But it, that's a fabulous film. Um, also a New York story. Also Woody Allen-esque without the baggage of Woody Allen, um, you know, showing like, I mean, what I like about this point in history is other people can do it and not have you feel as guilty um, or, or have you go down that rabbit hole. So good call. Um, and also, you know, um, focusing on a person. It, what I like about the two movies together, that would be an even better double feature because here are two single new york women who don't have their shit together and when it comes to francis you're like all right come on when are you gonna get it together when are you gonna you know make a go of things and and and, and you know kind of finally start getting some traction but when it comes to lee you're like what happened to you you know and and it's it's the different it's, it's strictly the difference of age because they've both got similar things going on in terms of trying to get some sort of momentum, get a break and have some, some tough shit handed their way. Like Francis loses her, her fellowship with, with like this dance Academy that she's in her dance teacher says like, where do you see yourself going? Cause you're kind of past the point of background player, but because one of them is 27 and one of them is, I don't know what Lee is supposed to be like late forties, mid forties. You approach the two stories very differently. Yeah. And I think it's it's also different um, with Lee as well, as you mentioned, age, of course, um, timing as well. Like, I think that the film being set, uh, or can you ever forgive me, being set in the, uh, 1991, I believe, um, it's, it's a different time. Like, I think we approached um, age and lifestyle, particularly when it comes to women, um, very differently in the early, even as, even as recent as the early nineties, oh, yeah. uh, than we do now. And Frances Ha, our lead is, um, again, very young. She's sort of at an age where she's starting to see people around her, uh, making kind of big life moves. Um, and yet she's similar to Lee a bit lost and a mm -hmm. bit, um, Uns unsure of herself in a way. And, and as you mentioned, like 
I guess for me, it's, um, it's about age, but it's also just about like, I guess, life stage, uh, you know, which is tied uh, to some extent to age. Um, you know, for, uh, in Frances Ha, she's just sort of getting out into the real world or working world, I guess I should say. Um, whereas Lee's kind of been there, done that, is a little jaded, is a little bruised up, is a little disillusioned. Um, whereas I think we're seeing in Frances Ha, she's just kind of at the beginning of reckoning with, um, you know, the different the different complexities and the different complications that life brings about. Yeah. No, that's, that's a great film. I love that film so much. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a sucker for black and white. Francis Ha's a gorgeous <laughs> black and white movie. Oh man. Thank you so much for reminding me of that movie. I'm totally going to watch oh, that later. You're welcome. <laughs> um, uh, I think I even have a copy, so I won't even have to look that hard. Uh, take that Marie Kondo. Uh, my, um, <laughs> my other selection for the other side, um, I talked about it quite recently and shamefully did not plug my uh, my appearance on this show so i'm going to remedy that now i was on um andrew robinson's uh, unnamed movie podcast tump i was a guest he doesn't even usually have guests we talked about the recent hbo film bad education starring uh hugh jackman and um uh allison janney um Ray Romano was kind of in the background as well. Um, also, Geraldine Viswanathan was the other actor I was trying to come up with a name. She was in a movie recently called Hala. She was one of the three girls in Blockers. Um, okay, this is my really, really long rambling intro to the no, conne- go for it. <laughs> the connection between these two films is be- between Can You Ever Forgive Me and Badge Education. These are two films that hang on liars. Um, bad education is an administ- uh, an education administrator who is embezzling funds for his own betterment. Um, can you ever forgive me? Obviously, she's a forger. And I found it really fascinating how the two films approach these liars so differently, wherein can you ever forgive me? We feel just so badly for her, you know, like even though she is a criminal, even though she's forging, she's profiting off the, the work of others, um, and that she knows it's wrong. Um, I think that that's the thing is we see that she's not actually, she's not lost in her own deceptions. She doesn't believe her own lies. Whereas in Bad Education, we watch Hugh Jackman become this guy who's just all about image and all about furthering himself um, as an excuse to bring along his high school and his district and everything else that we grow to despise him because he just can't stop lying even when confronted with it um and it's such an amazing dichotomy to watch the two stories about people who aren't telling the truth and how they both play out and how they both frame the liars at the center of them that's really interesting i myself haven't seen it yet but um (laughs) you've just bumped it up on my list (laughs) i mean it's like it's it's pretty good it's not it's not something that's going to make like my list of the best films of the year right now we're kind of starved for content so i'll take anything (laughs) It's like, hey, there's a new film on HBO. I'm like, I'm gone. Um, but um, it, it is it is good. I'm not going to sit here and say it's a bad movie. It's good. It's not maybe not great, but it's got it's such an interesting story. It's got some amazing performances in it. And as I say, by taking a story and putting a liar front and center, it becomes how does this story, especially in an age where so many of our leaders are just so such blatant liars. It's like, how do you frame them? 
are you like, can you ever forgive me? And you frame them with empathy or are you like bad education and you frame them with, with severe and rightful judgment? Clearly it, it also, um, takes into context like the the person and what exactly they're lying about and why they're lying you know for yeah. example lee is basically lying just to, to pay her bills and get by which is such a stunning kind of kicker at the end when she realizes that one of her letters is being sold for like what is it sixteen hundred nineteen hundred dollars yeah and she was paid like what like maybe 200 bucks for it or something yeah. you know um and she's kind of like well who really is the criminal here you know like um and uh whereas obviously someone like a politician a person who's in a position of power who's who are making policies um that will directly impact thousands if not millions of lives um you know lying in to that end is uh obviously very different context so yeah, that is, that is interesting. Um, I would I definitely will make a point to check out that education. Well, there we go. As I said, quick and uh, quick and easy other side today, um, but uh, a longer feature dispatch for your listening enjoyment. So I hope you don't mind. And like we both said, it's an early show. It's not so early now because um, we've both <laughs> been going on uh, for quite some time about this great movie. But that is the seventh dispatch of the Winchester Chronicles. And I'm so thankful to Julie Featherstone for coming by. Come on back on Monday, June. 29th for our eighth dispatch we will be discussing the killing of a sacred deer buckle up people because that movie oh there's so much to talk about with that movie joe lee can be found on twitter at at to film files um and are you writing anywhere are you podcasting anywhere anything you want to plug so recently on toronto film files on my own blog i published a review of judy and punch uh, by mira folks um, and you will also be able to see my review of uh, Dinner Party on Wiley Wrights soon to come. Um, I was also recently on uh, the Screenfish podcast uh, where we discussed our comfort films in the time of COVID-19. Ah, they're, they're in my soup. What's going on here, man? <laughs> I know it's, it's an interesting uh, thing. I think a lot of people right now are as you mentioned, we're, we're kind of, um, we're not seeing a lot of new, uh, films or TV shows coming out. Um, but on top of that, just the nature of the circumstances we're all in, I feel a lot of people are taking this time, not even to watch films on their must watch list, but to rewatch films that are kind of their go-to comfort films or, or perhaps revisit films that brought them comfort in the past. So uh, I mean, yeah. I personally am trying to strike a balance. I'm trying to mm-hmm. watch stuff for the first time, stuff that I've been meaning to or stuff that bubbles up on things like Criterion or Canopy or those kinds of things. But I ain't going to lie. Like this past week, I finally caved and started doing the Marvel movie rewatch. So it's, mm-hmm. it's I think it's all about balance, really. You can't, yes. you can't, you can't do too much of one or the other. Um, and if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? They can find me at T.O. Film Files. Very nice. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, Apple, everywhere that podcasts are hosted. Um, they give you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. If my show is not on your platform of choice, let me know and I will put it there. Uh, if you want to drop by and do an episode about uh, one of the decade's best films, and uh, I'm, I'm actually 
running low on planned episodes so hey drop me a line uh or you have feedback on can you ever forgive me um get in touch uh that either the comment section of the site email ryan at the matinee.ca twitter where i'm matinee underscore ca or facebook.com slash dark matinee any final thoughts mrs featherstone thank you so much for having me um i as always i so enjoyed our conversation and thank, thank you, you for making time dude you're the one who's, <laughs> you're the busy one i'm the guy who's the highlight of his day is taking a walk um, oh so hey that's that. the that's the highlight of my day too when i can get out for a walk <laughs> oh gosh it's like meditation awesome for jolie i'm ryan wash your hands and call your person <laughs>